States government became concerned that a number of German spies were operating in America, sending information back to Germany regarding Allied war plans or Allied troop movements or Allied uh, ship locations. So to keep uh, those supposed spies from impacting the war effort, the Office of War Information launched a national campaign around the slogan, Loose Lips Might Sink Ships. It was a solemn warning to people to not repeat information that might be damaging or even deadly if it fell into the wrong hands. This was uh, one of several similar slogans that all came under the campaign's basic message of careless talk costing lives. Interestingly, this campaign, uh, though originating in World War II, continues to this day and now finds itself being applied to social media and to Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and so on. And the whole idea, even from the, the War Department, is we need to be careful with our words because they can have a drastic impact on people's lives. And this evening, I want to continue our study of words. This morning, we talked about the fact that words matter, and we looked at four reasons why our words matter. Tonight, I want us to do a little bit of math with our words. And what I mean by that is I want us to consider what types of words we need to add to our speech and what types of words we need to remove from our speech. Um, and I want to start by going to James chapter 3. Actually, I want to start by going to Proverbs chapter 18. It's verse 22 of Proverbs chapter 18 where we have this powerful proverb which says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your words have tremendous impact in this world. Now jump over to James chapter 3. James has been the heart and soul of our study on words because he addresses words so very frequently. And it's in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. This is immediately after that section of, of the book of James where he compares our tongue to a uh, bit in a horse's mouth and to a rudder on a ship and to a spark that ignites a wildfire. Immediately after all that, when he says no human being can tame the tongue, he goes on to say it is a restless, restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. James is saying there are good uses of our words and there are bad uses of our words. There are uplifting uses of our words and there are negative uses of our words. We shouldn't be doing both. As Christians, he's saying both those things should not come from our mouth. And so since this duality of the tongue ought not to exist among believers, that means we need to add some speech habits and we need to subtract others. And James was not afraid to provide some directions regarding what types of speech need to be eliminated and what types of speech need to be included. And so what I want to do this evening 
is just make some, uh, make some observations stemming from the book of James about our word selection. And consider what we need to add and what we need to take away. Now, right off the bat, I want you to understand this is not going to be an exhaustive list. James does not address every type of word that we should say and we should not say. But he does give us a foundation. And I'm going to start with the words that we need to subtract. We must subtract negative speech habits. And James mentions three in particular. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. But it begins with this one. We must subtract perversity. Look at James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Now you're probably familiar with verse 19. We actually mentioned it this morning at the close of our lesson. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But then notice the next verse, the verse that immediately follows that well-known passage. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. He addresses anger, but specifically is addressing the fact that we should be in pursuit of God's righteousness. Now what gets interesting is when you jump to the 21st verse. As this same flow of thought is happening, it's then that James says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth, get rid of all filthiness. And the evil or unrighteousness or wickedness that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. It's as if James is saying that if you want to succeed at being quick to listen and slow to speak, then you have to start by eliminating anything that compromises your moral purity. And that would have to include impure words. Back in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 24, Solomon said, Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, Paul told the church in Ephesus that there must not be even a hint, even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because those are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. What's Paul saying? He's saying don't even give someone the hint by your words, by your actions. It doesn't matter. Don't even give them the hint that you're sexually immoral, that you're greedy. Because you're God's people. And you're to represent better than that. And he specifically calls out coarse joking, foolish joking, obscenity. Now let's be honest. We can fall in that category of foolish and coarse joking quite frequently, and, and that includes me. What are we communicating to the world around us when we bear the name of Christ and yet we talk like the world? Is that conforming or is that transforming? 
Is that being a friend of God or is that being a friend of the world? James is calling us out here. When in this passage where he calls on us to be slow to speak, he then follows it up with this instruction to get rid of moral filth. And when moral filth is associated with your mouth, when moral filth is associated with your words, we have to hearken back to passages like Proverbs 4 and Ephesians 5 and see this instruction to avoid or to eliminate or to get rid of perversity. See, when we engage in conversation that involves sexual innuendos and impure content, we are conforming to the world instead of transforming it. We have to remember that as Christ's representatives, our lives are expected to serve as an example for all with whom we come in contact. In fact, Paul, Paul instructs his two young protégés, Timothy and Titus. Both of them he instructs to set an example, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. To be a model of good works, Titus chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. He's expecting them to be exemplary, and in both those texts, he references their speech. Because people are watching, people are observing, and people are criticizing. And so this instruction that we find based on James's words... It's all about blamelessness. The objective when it comes to subtracting perverse conversation is to live a blameless life so that no one can accuse us of immorality. And so the first thing we should eliminate, the first thing we subtract is perversity. The second thing I believe James calls out for us to subtract is slander. Now, slander is defined as a malicious, false, or defamatory statement. And I want you to notice what James says, chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Another translation says it this way. Do not slander one another. Slander is a term that actually gets thrown out in the New Testament a lot. We don't use it a whole lot in our culture other than in legal situations. But we need to understand something about slander. The idea behind slander is me talking bad about you. And notice the context, context of James chapter 4 and verse 11. It's about brothers defaming one another, speaking evil against one another, slandering one another. Now, I'm not saying that gives you permission to do that to somebody outside the body of Christ. I'm just saying James specifically calls it out in the context of the church. Now, I'm certain a great many of us in here tonight are sitting here thinking, well, I don't do that. No one in here slanders one of their fellow brothers or sisters. Let's be honest. Have you ever yourself or heard someone talk bad about the preacher? I, I mean, sometimes it's in my own, in my own home. I mean, have, have you ever heard someone talk bad about the preacher? Have you ever heard someone talk bad or yourself talk bad about the elders 
and, and the direction they're going, and whether they should be an elder or not. Have you ever heard someone speak evil of a fellow member? Have you ever heard someone or yourself use defamatory language about someone who sits across the aisle from them on a Sunday because they don't like some decision they made or they don't like some part of their lifestyle? or they don't like their personality. Slander can happen more often than we give it credit. And James is specifically critical here of speech that is hateful, derogatory, judgmental, or disrespectful of fellow believers. His objective appears to be the same as other New Testament authors who seek to eliminate any form of speech that is negative or injurious and replace it with speech that is uplifting and beneficial. Look at what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's, James is not the only one to call out slander. And then you also have 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, which says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. What Peter does over the course of these two chapters in his letter is he denounces any kind of word that demeans your fellow brother or sister in Christ and calls on you instead to be someone who uplifts, someone who blesses, not curses your fellow brother or sister. We've got to get rid of the slander. We've got to get rid of the, 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 the words that are intentionally disrespectful and judgmental and derogatory and hate-filled about one another and find the words that uplift and bless one another. Those are the words that should come out of our mouths, not the other. And you know, Paul ultimately communicates the same thing when you get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, where he instructed the church in Ephesus to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, along with all malice, using some of the very same words as Peter. But then he goes on to indicate that it should be replaced with being kind to one another and forgiving one another. The whole idea here is you get rid of the words that mistreat your fellow brother or your fellow sister, and you implement the words that treat them the way you want to be treated. It's back to that love policy that Jesus has emphasized throughout his ministry, that God has emphasized throughout his word. It's back to the idea of loving one another. And it's all centered around the concept of kindness, of graciousness, of mercy, of forgiveness. We must subtract slander from our words. And there's one more that, Paul, that James calls out in his letter. We must subtract complaining. Look at James chapter 5 and verse 9. James says, Do not grumble against one another. Now, the term translated grumble can also be translated complain as it is in the New American Standard Version. So what James is saying is the exact same thing that Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, when Paul said, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to a church 
that has two women bickering with each other, that is divided on the basis of two members within that congregation. And he says, do all things without complete planning and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. One thing we often overlook is how critical God is toward complaining. Now, I know the, the two texts that we've seen here associate complaining specifically against one another, against your fellow brother or your fellow sister. But we got to admit, if you get to the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you're going to see Paul call out complaining. He's going to point to the Israelites and, see that, and say that was an example you don't want to follow. Those Israelites who were in the wilderness complaining about their lack of meat and their lack of water and their lack of variety of food and, and, and just all their complaining led to their downfall. God dislikes. God condemns complaining. But you know what? This room is filled with some complainers. And I might be chief among them. Because we are so very good at complaining. How many of you at some point this summer complained about how hot it got? How many of you complained about how hot it got just last week? How many of you complained about how rainy it got, how windy it got on occasion? How many of you have complained about how cold it is in this auditorium when that AC is on in the mornings? How many of you have complained about the song selection? How many of you have complained about the song tempo? How many of you have complained about the length of the preaching? How many of you have complained you fill in the blank? I'm not really pointing fingers because I'm as guilty as anyone when it comes to complaining. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. We have PhDs in complaining. And yet God says this is something that must be eliminated. And we need to understand that complaining is prohibited because it's a form of self-centeredness. Complaining keeps the focus on the complainer. Paul made it clear in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, just not, not many verses before this, that nothing is to be done from selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, every disciple is to assume a humble disposition by esteeming others better than himself or herself. Complaining is born out of self-centeredness, but it can also be born out of ungratefulness. Complaining dwells on disappointments and difficulties rather than blessings and opportunities. Paul made it clear in this very same letter, in the fourth chapter in particular, that we're to rejoice always, we're not to be anxious about anything, and that we're to be thankful in prayer about everything. And all of those, those instructions in Philippians chapter 4 emphasize gratefulness. But complaining is born sometimes out of ungratefulness. And sometimes complaining is born out of discontentment, out of dissatisfaction. We complain when things aren't going the way we want them to go. 
And Paul made it clear in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13 that disciples are to be content. They're capable of contentment. The, the, the verse that says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you is not a verse about playing football. It's not a verse about athletic endeavors. It's a verse about being content in context. God has called on us to learn contentment as Paul would use the language of. And when you understand contentment, you have no reason to complain. So James calls on the elimination of complaining because ultimately it prevents the disciple from being a doer of the word. So that's three things to subtract from our words. You look at the the book of James and you can see that he's calling on us to subtract perversity. He's calling on us to subtract slander and he's calling on us to to subtract complaining. Now, again, that's not everything we should subtract from our words. We could also talk about deceit and gossip and boasting and blasphemy. But I don't want you to complain about the length of this sermon, so we're going to carry on tonight. Understand that there are many things we can subtract from our speech, but those are the three that you can see James specifically call out. He then also takes the opportunity to talk about some things we can add to our words. Among those, among those positive speech habits that we're to add is humility. If you turn in James to, to James chapter 4, I want you to notice verse 13 through 16. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Here James criticizes any form of speech that demonstrates arrogance. He goes so far as to say that boasting is evil, and the reason it is evil is twofold. First, boasting is evil because it involves self-praise. And that contradicts God's expected use of our words. The goal of our words, as is the goal of our life, is to give glory to God. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. It says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That includes your words. But the other problem with boasting is that it involves self-will. It's not just self-praise, it's self-will. Did you notice that in context, James was criticizing people for talking about their agendas rather than God's agendas? He criticized people for saying today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, as opposed to saying, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, arrogance elevates the will of the self while humility elevates the will of the Lord. And James' point seems to be that we need to have speech that consistently presents the not my will, but yours 
mentality. We need to add humility because the example that James is calling out here is an example of arrogance. And so when you consider the implications of what James is saying there in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, it's a call for us to add humility, to change our words so that what we say and what we communicate defers to God first. So we need to add humility. On top of that, James is going to point out that we need to add honesty. Look at James chapter 5 and verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, I don't know if this was the case in your house, but when I was growing up, I was forbidden from swearing. I don't mean cussing, though that was outlawed as well. I mean from saying, I swear. I could not say, I swear. And I remember that presented a conundrum for me because back when I was a kid, a song called I Swear came out, and I thought it was a great song, especially if you want to sing it to a young lady. But I was forbidden from saying, I swear. I could say, I promise, but I could not say, I swear. And I never understood the difference between the two. They were saying the same thing, weren't they? And it was all because of this passage, or actually a sister passage from which it's taken, which is Jesus himself speaking back in Matthew chapter 5. James's brother is the one from whom James got this concept, because Jesus wrote this, or said this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to you of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What's Jesus trying to communicate here? Is it really wrong to say, I swear, as opposed to, I promise? The real issue here is the way in which the Jewish people were utilizing oaths. There were some restrictions in the Old Testament about oath-taking, and in particular the idea was if you make an oath, you better follow through with it. That was the teaching of the Old Testament. The Pharisees in particular had learned some loopholes. If you make an oath in a certain way, it was breakable. They bent the rules that they would find in the Old Testament to accommodate their unscrupulous oath-taking so that they wouldn't be bound to fulfill their obligations. What's really happening here is Jesus is communicating the fact that we need to be truthful with our words. See, most of the time we take oaths, or at least they took oaths, maybe we do too, we take oaths because we've created a situation in which we are not as reliable with our words as we should be. We vow, we swear, we promise, or we take an oath because we're trying to prove that what we are saying is truthful. It means that at some point in the past, we weren't truthful 
or someone wasn't truthful to cause people to doubt your truthfulness. And the fact that we need to prove that something we are saying is truthful is an indication that we might not be trusted with our words. So in saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no, Jesus and James are challenging the cultural acceptance of dishonesty and instituting an expectation of integrity with our words. The idea here is a call to be honest with your words. If you say yes, follow through on that yes. If you say no, don't backtrack from that no. Let your honesty choose your words. Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. He instructed his readers to put away falsehood and to speak the truth with your neighbor. The expectation throughout the Bible is honesty. And let's be more specific. Because kids are great at bending the parameters of what constitutes honesty. We all learned it. Honesty or honest words are more than not To be honest is more than to avoid deliberately falsifying the facts. Honest speech excludes all forms of intentional deceitfulness, such as half-truths or withholding information or misrepresentations or misleading vagueness. Honesty is about being consistently truthful in our use of words across the board. And James, just as his brother had done before him, is calling on us to have words, to use words, to employ words that are always honest. And in this day of technology, in this day of information abundance, maybe that should also apply to the things we share with the world. When you're sending out an email with attachments or you're making a post on social media or I should say when you're sharing something on social media, maybe you need to find out if it's truthful before you post it or before you send it. Because if it's not truthful, then you're perpetrating, you're, um, I don't know if I'm using the right word, you're advancing something that's dishonest. And in this whole idea of us being blameless, us shining as lights in this world, we don't want to be people who continue something that is dishonest. So keep that in mind that when it comes to our words, we must add honesty. And finally, we must add thanksgiving. James chapter 5 and verse 13. James provides instructions regarding how Christians should respond to difficult situations as well as pleasant situations in this passage. In James chapter 5, verse 13, he said, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, prayer is a form of speech. I'm not going to dive into that this evening. 
Because I want us to pay attention to James' instruction about singing praise. Just as prayer should be our reflexive response to any difficult situation, praise should be our reflexive response to any pleasant situation. I think James is echoing the words of Paul, who in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 instructed Christians to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. But from there he went on to say this, Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, did you notice that giving thanks in all circumstances is identified as the will of God? I've, I've said this before, but anytime I come across this terminology, this phraseology in Scripture, this is the will of God, my ears perk up. I mean, if, if the Bible's going to come out and say, this is the will of God, I probably better pay really good attention to that. Because isn't, isn't my objective, isn't your objective to be doing the will of God? And you can't miss that. This is the will of God. You know, there's only three occasions in the Bible where this specific language, this is the will of God, appears. Only three times. Now, that does not mean that there's only three things that constitute the will of God. It just means that that phraseology only is used three times. Twice here in 1 Thessalonians and once over in 1 Peter. The first appearance in 1 Thessalonians is in chapter 4 and verse 3 where Paul said, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God for you to abstain from sexual immorality. The implication of that verse is that purity is a primary component of God's will. If you go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15, Peter said, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In context, Peter was addressing submission to civil authority. Now, some of us don't want to hear that submitting to government is the will of God, but that's what he is implying here. More importantly, or more specifically, he's saying that a Christian's Submission fulfills the will of God by eliminating the opportunity for accusation and slander against his people. The verse implies that blamelessness is a primary component of God's will. Doing whatever has to be done so that you are blameless is a primary part of God's will. And that third occasion where the phrase is made is here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In the context of thanksgiving, the three times we get a specific glimpse into the will of God because that phrase appears, it has to do with purity, it has to do with blamelessness, and it has to do with thanksgiving. Our words need to elevate gratitude and thanksgiving because that's the will of God. That in all circumstances, in all circumstances, the text says, we're giving God thanks, even in the unpleasant circumstances. Really, though, you got to think. Do my words demonstrate such thanksgiving? Am I thankful in all circumstances? When the diagnosis comes back not good, are you thankful? 
when the financial situation gets dire, are you thankful? When that tragedy comes to your home, are you thankful? Not thankful for the tragedy, not thankful for the financial crisis, not thankful for the diagnosis. But thankful that God is there to go to. Thankful that he still cares about you and that he loved you enough to send Jesus to die for you so that one day you can escape this world with all of its problems and be with him for eternity. That's the will of God, that no matter what the circumstances are in your life, he still receives the praise. Again, this was not meant to be an exhaustive list. In addition to these positive speech habits, we could mention encouragement and and, and praising God and things like that. Even prayer, which we didn't talk about. But the overall idea I want you to take away from tonight is that there are some words we need to subtract. There are some words we need to add. And the truth is, they have an impact on whether or not we are wreckers or builders. I want to share a poem I came across with you. I don't know who wrote it, but it goes like this. I watched them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town. With a ho-he-hove and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled as the men you'd hire if you had to build? He gave me a laugh and said, no, indeed, just common labor is all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken a year to do. And I thought to myself as I went my way, which of these two roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by the rule and square? Am I shaping my deeds by a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks the town, content with the labor of tearing down? When it comes to your words, have you been a wrecker or a builder? Wreckers tear down individuals as well as the kingdom of God through careless use of their words. Builders build up individuals as well as the kingdom of God through the effective use of their words. Which are you? God has called us. He has called us to be builders. And so tonight, as we continue this study of our words and we look at words we need to add and words we need to subtract. Have you been a builder? Or have you been a wrecker? If you've been reckless with your words, you have the opportunity tonight to repent. You have the opportunity tonight to correct. You have the opportunity tonight to change the way you use your words. If you have any need to respond to the invitation this evening, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.